It's Wednesday, June 15th. Welcome to Market Foolery. I'm Mark Reith, and joining me in studio today from Million Dollar Portfolio, Jason Moser, and from Hidden Gems, Mike Olson. Gentlemen, how's it going? Hey, hey. Hello, sir. Happy hump day. Yes. <laughs> We've got plenty to get to today, including Apple's developer conference and some problems over at Valiant. But we begin with a quick look at what is seemingly the impending Brexit. Uh, and uh, Tim and Chris talked about the Brexit a bit on the show yesterday. I just wanted to recap it uh, because a new poll came out uh, later in the day on Tuesday that showed that 40% of adults in uh, Britain are voting to remain in the EU, but 47 are ready to leave the EU. And Mike, uh, Tim, and Chris were talking about this yesterday. At one point, a Brexit seemed absurd. Now it seems almost like a sure thing. With the vote less than 10 days away, uh, it's time to take this seriously. Uh, really, what I wanted to get from you was an idea of what an investor is to do about this, because we're seeing the Brexit talk hurt the uh, markets these days yeah. already. Uh, we're still, again, about eight days out from this vote. What happens on voting day? What happens afterwards? What is an investor to do? Right. So I think that they're probably within the realm of probabilities. There are a very wide range of outcomes, but most fundamentally speaking, I would say you're staying the course right here, hmm. which is to say that if you are seeing attractively valued companies, you are investing in them. Um, it is almost inevitable. I also spotlight as the co-advisor for Pro UK that, and so I'm relatively, you know. Well informed on sure, this. better than better than I, perhaps. I think that it is almost inevitable that UK markets will experience some declines, and there will, in likelihood, be some short-term pain. Um, however, I think first, it's less likely than people actually think that this Brexit will happen. Those hmm. poll numbers, there is a considerable number of undecided voters within them, uh, sometimes near ten percent or upwards. And so those undecideds, if they do show up and vote, history has shown that there's sort of a strong status quo bias where they will go ahead and kind of stick with whatever the norm is. Right. That is kind of interesting if you're to go ahead and observe the context here. People bet on everything. There are huge bookie markets in the UK. And there's the book Super Forecasters. Philip Tetlock found that if you're to go ahead and look at bookies and you know betting markets as a population, they've historically been relatively well-informed groups and good at predicting these sorts of outcomes. When I last checked yesterday, bookies at Ladbrokes uh, had- Is that your usual bookie? Oh, yeah. <laughs> Is that That's the one I you have. always use? Well, I, sure. I can't do that. Um, <laughs> however, they had the odds of a, a remain vote at 58% and 42% as leave. So, I think this is something, you know, that you certainly need to be aware of, but I believe the risk, at least right now, has been dramatically overdone. If it's carried out to its sort of furthest extent, which is to say that a lot of other countries contemplate exiting the Euro Union, and particularly those that are actually on the Euro currency, mm -hmm. then it's something to be worried about. That being said, I don't think that does happen because the degree of integration among Euro-bearing countries is such that you can't really undo that right now. This is a marriage that, I mean, they're kind of stuck. Um, so, uh, for better or worse, what a happy really. I mean, marriage. That is the case, is. though. It's like we've seen I, we've seen this kind of play out before. I mean, we went through all of the headlines in regard to Greece. It just seems like while it makes a great headline, and you certainly see how the polls will show sort of a a polarized opinion there. Um, I, I think that's. 
it's very it's very in the moment. I think a lot of people are just going to have a strong opinion one way or the other just because they have a strong feeling of independence or or what you know the the, the European Union is is really uh, the better solution there. But but I think to Mikey's point, you you've got a situation. They're going to have to see see this through the good times and the bad. And I think we've we've talked often about uh, the difficulties involved with the concept of the European Union and the fact that you've got all of these countries with these tremendously varying cultures, um, which I think is a lot more difficult to marry than probably they initially anticipated. Um, but that's not to say that you just dissolve it and move on, particularly when you're talking about the Eurozone countries that are on the same currency. you got to figure out a way to make that work, because unwinding it is, is I think, it's going to be way more work than it is to try to figure out how to make it work. Oh, yeah. Right. Years you know? of work. Years mm-hmm. upon years. Okay, so for right now, investors just stay the course. You do your thing. You do yeah. your thing. All right, that is our official guidance for the Brexit. Uh, let's move on to Valiant, uh, where CEO, new CEO Joseph Papa had his first shareholder meeting the other day. Uh, it was an interesting meeting here, Mike, and we'll talk about exactly why in a moment. But Valiant itself has been struggling recently, namely due with the huge load of debt it's accrued over the years as it bought up all of these other smaller, lesser pharmaceutical companies. Now that debt load is somewhere above $31 billion, that's billion with a B, dollars, and Valiant's got to find a way to get rid of it. What is the plan for Valiant? <laughs> Pay it back! I mean, sure. Or they can have some Sort of Brexit, maybe just flee for the hills, uh, Mike. What's the plan? What is a what is Valiant doing here? I I honestly don't know how they get <laughs> how this gets better. Um, they effectively speaking have become like the equivalent of an arms dealer in drugs. Um, <laughs> so it, a a drug dealer? I well no, I'm watching the Night Manager on AMC. Gonna shout that out. Huge show, very good. So that's that was the inspiration for that, mm-hmm. but. I mean, basically, what these people did is they acquired a lot of orphan drugs and they raised the prices in an astronomic way. Mm-hmm. Now, there are varying and conflicting accounts with respect to how much they did raise them. I mean, this is among actually like prior executives at the company. Right. So you don't really know how much you, they raised them, but we certainly do know that they raised prices a lot on some drugs. And so, what we also know is that strategy is not going to work going forward, and they may have to take some of these price increases back. Because when people have terminal diseases and you raise the prices in such a way that you make their lives even more miserable, well, that's not a really good business. Mm. Um, so, um, argument might go that you know the stock is trading at four times earnings and their debt maturities are manageable, but I don't know that their earnings power is going to be what it historically has. Right, because um, they're going to have to start lowering those prices soon. Exactly. Um, or the, the risk is there. I mean, mm-hmm. yet again, we don't know the exact magnitude of the price increases, but by some accounts, they've been pretty staggering. Right. Um, and if they were to for, forced to take these back, it's pretty bad. I think for most people here, you're better suited if this. I mean, unless this is an exceedingly small position and you accept that it's a speculation, mm-hmm. because it's really nothing more than that in my opinion right now. You're best suited to not hold this. I mean, you don't need to have an opinion here. Yeah, we've talked about this. I mean, a, f- a few times before, and I think it just bears repeating that when you look at Valiant, I mean, there there are enough red flags kind of in there to make you wonder if this is a business that you really want to invest in. At least from sort of the foolish sort of business-focused investing that we tend to harp on here. Um, 
we're talking about the debt load and, and talking about the expectations going forward. I mean, all of the expectations that led this company to where it is today was all based on that acquisition model. They would go issue loads and loads of debt, issue new shares, buy up these companies, and then that's kind of how they were making their money. It wasn't terribly organic. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's fine as long as it works. But when you run into a buzzsaw like they've run into, now they can't really make any acquisitions because they can't issue their shares currency because nobody wants it and they don't really have any cash on the balance sheet to buy anything and they're stuck now with this huge debt load and if you take a look at I mean just on the income statement alone I mean you see just the net interest expense versus operating income today I mean the coverage ratio is just over 1 and you really want to see that number like 5 6 7 mm-hmm. 10 20 anywhere but 1 which basically is telling us that like they can right now just barely afford to cover the interest that they're paying. Right. Um, and that obviously is as bad as it sounds. So uh, I we've said it before in Motley for one, I mean there's a great lesson here to be learned in not necessarily following where the big money perhaps goes, because I think it's um, Ackman who has really been Screaming about this one from the mountaintop for a long time now, mm-hmm. and I mean he's lost his he's lost his shirt on it, obviously, and it's not to rub that in, but I mean he continues to like <laughs> offer up a case for this, and I I think it's a shame because there are points in time where as an investor you've got to be able to step back and just look at it and say, wow, yeah, I guess I got this one wrong, and just kind of cut bait and move along. Um, well, there that, may be something there, but I, I certainly, I mean, it's speculation at best. Well, that's one of the things I also wanted to talk about with Valiant because in his shareholder meeting statements, uh, Joseph Papa, again, the new CEO there over at Valiant, uh, said that in order to reduce the debt load, they could a what Mike said, uh, you know, start trimming. Uh, the prices on some of the drugs that they sell, or B, uh, sell off some of the uh, subsidiaries that they've acquired over the years, uh, including some of their core subsidiaries like Bosch and Loam, which is an eye care subsidiary. Um, and that is in direct contradiction to what William Ackman, Bill Ackman, and the guys over at Pershing Square have said, where Joseph Papa is clearly setting himself up to say, well, listen, we've got a problem here, as, as Jason pointed out. We can't really move, we can't really pay anything back, we've got to start shedding some of these assets. William Ackman has said, well, no, why would we do that? The whole point was to acquire these assets. It kind of seems like there's a butting of heads there right. at the top. And again, not something that an investor really wants to hear. Well, I mean, you're, you're in a difficult spot in two ways right here. First is basically, you go ahead and try and sell any of these assets right now, you're selling them at fire sale prices. Right. Because people know you're dealing from a position of weakness. Secondarily, on the idea that they could go ahead and reduce prices and then sell more drugs, ostensibly speaking, I don't really accept that hypothesis because their strategy has historically been that they are acquiring drugs that are relatively niche in terms of their scope. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, in many cases, I don't know that they're necessarily going to be able to move much more product. Um, there are, I mean, I'm not intimately apprised of their entire product bin, but a lot of these here, some of the ones, this one that was really big for like a rare eye disease, there are like a handful of people in the entire world that have it, and it was one of their top revenue producers. I mean, so I just don't get it. It's a great lesson. Just economics at the end of the day, economics rule. Mm -hmm. And you never want to be caught in the position, whether you're the CEO of Valiant or an individual investor or a home buyer. In a position of weakness, and in a case of forced selling, mm-hmm. where you have no power in the negotiation whatsoever, and and certainly that's where Valiant finds itself today. I mean, it, to me, it's a little annoying to hear 
someone like Ackman get in there and say we shouldn't be doing that. I mean, it, it implies that he perhaps knows this market better than anyone else that's working in this company. And I mean, remember, this is the guy that uh, said he was going to go in there and fix J.C. Penney. And I mean, that's retail, man. That's not rocket science. So again, utter failure mm-hmm. in, in in installing leadership that he felt was appropriate there. I, I I just it's very easy for people I think to get caught up in the headlines and the big money folks that are always screaming buy or sell. This is what I'm doing. A great lesson for all investors: don't just follow what people are doing. I mean, it's good to take note of it, but understand why they're doing it. Come up with your own sort of research and ideas as to why this may work out or may not, and feel comfortable making your own decisions there. Because if you just follow along, mm-hmm. you find yourself probably more often than not getting stuck with a bag. Some hard lessons to learn from the Valiant situation. Uh, let's move on to Apple. Uh, they've been learning a lesson recently as hardware sales have been slowing for a while. Uh, Apple kicked off its Worldwide Developers Conference yesterday, uh, and so the focus has really been on improving software keeping people in the Apple ecosystem. Uh, so, to that end, they announced a whole bunch of different stuff. Uh, and Let's go through some of the bigger announcements. Jason, uh, what did you see in the Apple uh, Developer Conference? What did you like? What did you dislike? Uh, anything stick out to you? Yeah, I think it's really easy for us to be very critical of Apple uh, today, simply due to the massive success of the iPhone. Um, I mean, that really has been what has defined this company for the past decade, I guess. Right. Uh, that's how they make most of their money, and it basically has set our expectations so high that we just have this expectation that they're going to catch lightning in a bottle again sometime soon here. Um, and I think that sort of what Apple's going through right now is is a testament to the fact that it's not quite so easy. Um, I, I I was thinking kind of at the beginning of the week, I, what's more exciting this this year's developer conference or watching paint dry? Because I don't really. Find this developers conference to be all what? that exciting. Come on, there's now, a new operating system, Jason. <laughs> well, a new operating so I'm, system. So I'm admittedly not a fully enmeshed Apple customer. I mean, I have an iPod or I have an iPhone, and um, I have an old iPad that is still to watch videos, but that's about it at this point. Um, I, it just it's interesting to me that they you find them rebuilding Apple Music, for example, which. They really put a lot of work into that initial launch, and really were touting that initial launch. And it—I mean, I don't want to say it's flopped, because it does have people subscribing to it, but it certainly hasn't hasn't done as well as I think they expected. Right. Um, and, and and I think that is because it was extremely difficult to figure out how to use. And I I really have not read any any terribly exceptional experiences with it at this point. And and when it comes to music, there are a million and one options out there at this point. So I don't know what really. I don't know why they feel like they can separate themselves, but I'm I'm glad to see at least they went back to the drawing board and, sure. and took users' advice to heart. Um, I'm not really sure necessarily why they're focused on the watch at this point. Still, I mean, to me, even if it's faster, I mean, to me that means two things. It means number one, I still don't have a reason to buy it because it's the same thing, and number two, it's just going to suck the battery power even faster. Right. And I mean, I can already see from my phone that it's maybe a year and a half old, and and the battery's already starting to oh, wane on it. Oh, there's an embedded self-destruct feature. Yeah. In this. I mean, I just um. I, I wish that they would focus on building a better battery. Perhaps that would be far more useful and probably revolutionary. Um, but with that said, I do like that they're focusing on the HomeKit stuff. Mm-hmm. I've always been very critical of them, kind of sleeping on that issue. I feel like they really let a lot of competition fly by, uh, fly, fly right by them. And, and I mean, this is coming from the perspective of someone who has an Echo in his house. 
I really enjoy that interface. I don't think the phone is going to be the best interface for a connected home. Right. Um, but with that said, I, I appreciate the fact that they recognize it's an important market. I want to see them do more there. So, again, I mean, it, it's it's they're doing neat things. It's just we have such high expectations because of what they've done with the phone. Right. And and I think there are probably some unrealistic expectations still out there. I mean, this is still one of the most relevant companies and important companies on the face of the earth. It's just a different sort of investment now than perhaps it was five years ago. Yeah, I mean, I I think there's nothing really evolutionary here. I take a somewhat different view than than Jason with respect to like the idea of this, where basically what Apple has sort of systematically done is they've built this sort of ecosystem of apps where. I mean, I think fundamentally this is a hardware company, but mm-hmm. if you have a hardware company which also offers a very compelling and sort of interwoven user experience in that app ecosystem, which is sufficiently annoying to switch from, uh, they're going to get that recurrence of revenue in the iPhone, and they'll also be able to go ahead and retain that premium pricing element, which they've historically had. Mm-hmm. Um, I was always skeptical of Apple as a hardware company and this idea that they would have to continuously iterate. But what they've done, and I can say this, you know, unequivocally as a user, is they've created a good product, which is also very annoying to switch from. Um, <laughs> it is a sticky ecosystem, and that's actually, you know, to that point, they were they're harping on that for mm-hmm. this con- de- developers conference where they're trying to get Siri into all these different apps so that if right. you and I don't even use a lot of these things, like sure. I'm not a super user there. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, all these things maybe at the margin they make a couple customers a little bit more sticky. Mm-hmm. They like in healthcare or whatever you will, there's a little bit more of an attraction. I think one thing that's not really well understood when people go ahead and say, okay, Apple, not a growth company anymore. No, they aren't going to shoot the lights out anymore. But they probably have only about 20% market share within, you know, on a global basis, and only 40%, this is among smartphones, and only 40% of people have smartphones. And so, you know, this is not going to be a shoot the lights out growth trajectory because a lot of those markets they're trying to penetrate, say India, China, parts of Latin America. Um, I've been to a lot of these places recently, and they don't have the the infrastructure to go ahead and support the phone. Right. But in time, they will. And so, you know, I think you'll slowly but surely see growth among iPhones. And so, against that prospect, stock isn't enormously valued. I don't think WWDC is a reason that you're going to rush out and buy the stock. The watch is still dumb. I agree. <laughs> um, <laughs> and, uh, you know, but that's fine. This is primarily an iPhone company. Sure. Um, so, yeah. Let's keep on talking tech. Uh, venture capitalist Mark Andreessen uh, had a quote that Jason, you pulled out, uh, you found pretty interesting. He was talking about how he expects to see more mergers and acquisitions in the tech industry than we've seen recently. Uh, and that seems to go with the flow of themes. We've seen a lot of acquisitions in the pharmaceutical industry. We just talked about Valiant. Uh, we've seen a lot happening in oil and gas with the price of oil so low. Uh, you know, a lot of companies are cheap right now. Now, Microsoft just bought LinkedIn for $26 billion in cold hard cash, something like that. Yep. Uh, is that the beginning of a new consolidation phase in the tech industry? Well, Andreessen certainly seems to think so. And I tend to. Give some credence to what he says, just because of his position inside Silicon Valley. I mean, he's a very smart guy with a lot of uh, 
a, a, a lot of in there. I mean, he gets a lot of information. And um, weren't we just talking about not following the big fish? <laughs> well, he's, don't follow Will Atman, but follow we're not, we're not Come making, on, Moser. We're not making investment decisions based on what he's saying. We're simply taking a look at the greater market mm-hmm. uh, and trying to determine if if what he's saying makes sense. And I, I think it does to a degree. I mean, I, I certainly wouldn't go out there and start buying up. Um, every little tech stock you could find on the basis that it'll be acquired soon, because that's never really a thesis, right? That's more of a coin flip. Mm. Um, but I mean, it does make sense. I mean, we've been talking about sort of this consolidation among these Silicon Valley tech, uh, tech companies for a while, because as time goes on, it becomes more difficult to to raise money. The cost of business is going up, and really, at some point. We've got to start figuring out the winners from the losers here, and and Andreessen seems to think we're at a point where that's going to be the case. And I think that makes sense to a degree. Uh, we're, we're definitely seeing funding dry up, right? And we've been talking uh, bubbles and unicorns for years now. There, the there do industry. seem, yeah, there seem to be some some pretty lofty valuations out there that don't quite make a lot of sense. I mean, I saw one where Glassdoor raised some money and was valued at a billion dollars now, <laughs> and. I mean, I really, that was to me a very, very big sign that we are at the top. I, I mean, there's nothing against the glass door, but I don't, I don't see how that's a billion dollar company. Right. Um, it's not to say it is, it's just saying that's what it's valued in the private markets. I mean, Snapchat, I think, recently garnered a $20 billion market valuation, and they don't really make any money either. So that tells you a lot. Um, I, you know, I, we look at companies like Snapchat. I'd love to see Snapchat go go public because I think it, it serves a purpose among a very specific demographic, mm-hmm. and I think there's an opportunity there for it to be a part of this sort of changing media space. Uh, on the flip side, I mean, you look at Facebook and Twitter. I mean, they were they were able to go public. I think at a very good time mm-hmm. where they were able to raise a lot of money with with less sort of. Um, Less sort of they just they were they were not quite as under the microscope yeah, perhaps there are as fewer companies are now too and and uh, so yeah I think we're going to continue to see sort of some consolidation there um, the big news I think now is everybody's waiting to see that it's after the Microsoft LinkedIn deal now everybody's talking about how Google's going to acquire Twitter yeah. and you know, we tend to say that once you hear everybody saying that that's a surefire sign that it's not going to happen. Um, and Andreessen even said as much. He said, "Yeah, New York seems to think that's the right idea, but in Silicon Valley, they're actually talking about the opposite." Mm-hmm. Um, and, and certainly, Twitter is is more than than able to keep on going their own way. But yeah, I mean, I, I think it'll be neat to kind of see how this how this uh, shakes out. We'll find that find the businesses that really have long lasting, sustainable uh, positions in sort of this new era of technology. Yeah, I mean, I think. I think Jason probably hit the two most salient points here, which is well, to I think say you that, like. I mean, you basically, if you are starting to look at companies, and this is your filter or lens, you're probably not doing it right. Um, <laughs> I mean, like here, here. that is not a thesis. And so, you know, if you're saying I want to own Twitter, not because this is a fundamentally good business or because it can grow its cash flow or because the market has misunderstood X, Y, and Z, but because you think there's a likelihood that Google will acquire it, that's not really a thesis. Right. That being said, I do think there's some merit to this idea, which is to say that there are a lot of companies which probably have very valuable data stores but are having a difficult time monetizing them. And I think if you were to go ahead and, I mean, the LinkedIn Microsoft uh, deal as Sort of a good and representative example here. Microsoft 
has a lot of analytics software, where basically what they're doing is they're parsing very complex data and trying to find patterns between them. I think if you're to go ahead and look at the LinkedIn deal and say, is there a strategic merit here? That is perhaps the only reason you could say there is strategic merit for Microsoft to go ahead and acquire them. Um, and there are going to be other companies like that, which came public at relatively inflated valuations, are maybe not living up to what people thought the potential is. But there is perhaps an alternative use for another company. Um, hmm. And so I, I think that things like that may happen. Um, Any examples in mind, or is this more of a general? It's kind of a general yeah, yeah. observation. I mean, I think Twitter is perhaps a great example of a company where, if you ask me, do I think they're necessarily going to be capture a lot of the online ad market? I don't think so. Mm-hmm. I think it's going to be very much a niche phenomena. And I think it'll be very valuable to those people who do use it, but I don't see this being sort of a widespread thing that a lot of people use. It's not your new new news stand. Right. Um, but there, there's certainly a lot of value in that company to somebody who wants to have very granular data on a, a certain population. I think it's also interesting to look at the way the LinkedIn Microsoft deal happened. I mean, the way LinkedIn sort of went about the the beginning of the year here. I mean, it was it was the report in February, I guess it was, where the stock got shellacked. Mm-hmm. And I mean, it was it was trading at some very lofty multiples earlier mm-hmm. and we noticed that and and started expressing some concern about that. And I, and, and to me like LinkedIn accepting this offer really tells you everything you need to know. And in a lot of our this is another example of one that didn't right. live up to that potential. Right. And mm-hmm. and there really was the expectation for that potential not all that long ago too, right? I mean, mm-hmm. there there was this belief that this market opportunity for LinkedIn and what they were going to do was just going to be almost infinite. And and I I get how people might say that because when you look through the the company documents, if you look through the Microsoft LinkedIn thing for example, the press release and they talk about their market opportunities separately and then combined, and they're still showing this LinkedIn market opportunity at 105 or 115 billion dollars or something like that. That's a neat number to see there, but but don't just take that at face value. Try to figure where's that coming from and how are they going to get a piece of that? Right. Because any anybody in this room, I imagine, could could have seen here over the past year that LinkedIn as a platform for a user was becoming almost unusable. Hmm. And and I mean I I've been very critical of their platform and all the things that we're doing and so then you wonder well what kind of price what kind of price did Microsoft get there was it fair I think it was more than fair for LinkedIn shareholders I mean as I said on Monday I think they got a gift because I think for LinkedIn to get back up to two hundred dollars or better per share was going to be a really really long uh, climb right and so I think this is probably the best opportunity for LinkedIn shareholders to get out while they're getting was good and I'm sure there's going to be some data that Microsoft can glean from all of this. Uh, and I think when you look at businesses like Twitter, Facebook, any of those, I think really what these guys need to figure out is how are they going to make money beyond the advertising, right? I mean, take it beyond just the advertising game. That's what really could be impressive. And you mentioned Twitter's data, and, and Facebook has data as well. So I, I think you'll find more and more partnerships where bigger players in the tech space are utilizing platforms like these to glean data to, to do bigger, better things. Um, but yeah, I think I think the LinkedIn Microsoft deal is certainly a sign of things to come, and I think you could look at that offer as sort of a proxy of sort of realistic valuations here, probably for the for the next year. Right. Well, and I, I, there's one other thing here, which is basically you just think about why LinkedIn might have done this, which is to say that 
if you're Jeff Weiner, you're probably pretty frustrated. <laughs> you're kind of sick of hearing this. Yeah. You're not living up to the potential. And also, the ability to go ahead and draw on what are some pretty deep pockets at Microsoft while you go ahead and execute that plan, maybe it's an acknowledgement that it doesn't work. It is worth noting that basically X, what was the deal that they did? We were talking about this, Jason. Which one? The the company that is also a woman's name. Um uh, oh, oh, Lynda.com. Xlynda.com. Yeah, 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 yeah. Earlier this year, their core business was basically not growing. If right. you were to back out those numbers, and so, and if you look at the price LinkedIn paid for that, it was absurd. Mm-hmm. And I mean, the only reason why they got away with it was because they were able to pay for a lot of it with shares that they issued at really high prices. Mm-hmm. So that worked out well for them, at least from that regard. But right. But I think that I mean, the broader point here is there are a lot of companies that are thinking about this. Um, <laughs> And maybe that's an indication they perhaps should have never gone public in the first place, or maybe it's an indication that they were dramatically overvalued. Whatever you want to call it, um, you know, there will probably be a continuation of that trend. But I'm not necessarily setting theses on any of this. And I would not dismiss either that management here with LinkedIn, and I think that management with other tech companies are going to have to consider this at least. Uh, I think LinkedIn management here had to. To some degree, consider its employees in this in this math as well, uh, because you remember when LinkedIn when LinkedIn's earnings release came out and the, and the stock fell 45 percent that one day. Mm-hmm. I mean, there were a lot of employees who were basing a lot of their compensation on options, restricted stock, yep. etc. Yeah. And when that valuation got cut by that much, that really put the screws to a lot of employees who probably had higher, grander aspirations. Possibly, were even spending some of that money before they actually really even had it, and it's not to say that's right or wrong, but it's just to say that I think that management has to step back and realize that a lot of these tech companies are utilizing shares and options as currency in order to be able to pay to get good talent in the door. Management probably knew it was going to be a very tough road ahead to get that share price back up there, and maybe this was another consideration. There was that they had a lot of employees to really look after as well, right? All right, we've touched on all the tech titans out there. You know, Google, Apple, Microsoft, LinkedIn, and Lynda.com. This is a good, good stuff. Everyone loves Lynda.com. <laughs> Got to talk about everything. All right, Jason Moser, Mike Olson, guys, thanks for being here. Thanks. Pleasure. As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and the Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against. So don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. That's it for this edition of Market Foolery. The show is mixed by Austin Morgan. I'm Mark Reith. Thanks for listening. We'll see you tomorrow.